0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome back to another week of the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Canada's most irreverent talk show. It's my great pleasure to have you with us on this April 27th, 2020 edition of the program. I'm not keeping track of how long we've been in this uh, perpetual state of flux because I think it only gets too depressing, but I do hope you are managing your way through it, keeping healthy, keeping sane, not necessarily in that order, though perhaps, you never know. In any case, thanks very much. We are going to talk today about a little bit of the Nova Scotia details that changed after the last episode finished recording, which always happens. You commit to just one detail, and then just as you're hitting upload to post it, you know, something comes out and changes. We'll talk about that. Thankfully, what was announced was actually something that I had predicted, so I can claim somewhat of of an exoneration on any issues there, but we'll talk about that later on. I want to start first by delving into some more of these public safety, public order divergences here, where the public order measures that law enforcement officials are using I don't think are actually really doing anything for public health. And one of them actually comes to a town near me, Elmer, Ontario, where, like many other people, I'm going to church online now. So my church has switched to online services. A lot of people are doing this in multiple religious gatherings and religious denominations. I know Muslims are doing their prayers via Zoom, a lot of the cases now for Ramadan. And if you are a Muslim, happy Ramadan to you. But the one thing I I will point out is that There is a church in Elmer, Ontario that decided to do something that I I think I might have even mentioned as a joke. I can't remember if I said it on the show or if I said it to someone else. If I said it on the show, let me know because I want to like claim credit for them doing this. But I said, I wonder if someone could just do like a drive-in where we could just reopen drive-in movie theaters and any other social events you can just do as the old drive-in mentality where you drive on, you tune your car to a particular radio station that has a really short range and, and you do it. I, I thought that would be a way to kind of get around the whole you can't be in the same room as five people thing. And there's a church in Elmer that's been doing drive-in services where everyone gets into the car, they keep the car windows up up, they turn to whatever the radio station is, and the preacher stands outside the church and does his sermon, and everyone gets to hear it on the radio. And I think this is actually a great way of doing things, because you are completely socially distanced, you're not near anyone else, you're not touching anyone, you're not speaking moistly on them, and then what happens is people are able to read their Bibles, they get that feeling of community. And in this case, police didn't like it. Police decided to have a complete surveillance operation running at this church service in Elmer, the Church of God, which is near St. Thomas, Ontario, which is near London, Ontario, which is near Toronto. If I'm just—the further away you get, the less likely you are to know where it is. So if you have no idea, it's on a map in southwestern Ontario. In any case— this story, courtesy of the London Free Press, police videotaped a drive-in church service but issued no ticket Sunday as a battle over the meaning of a province-wide emergency order reaches reached new levels. Uh, you look further on down and there is literally a police officer surveilling the church service. And ultimately, the sermon was about the importance of keeping churches up and running. And this is one of these things where if you're able to do your sermon online and you're able to do all that online, fine. I think that is adequate for the time being. But if you want to do something like this, even if it is in spite of legislation, you have to ask who is really being harmed here. Now, I know that police... We're not actually ticketing anyone. And I don't know if they're going to issue formal warnings. I mean, the videotaping, I I think, is a bit menacing because now they have all the license plates of the people that went there. And if they decide they want to take things seriously moving forward, they can go literally door to door and start canvassing all these people whose only crime, and I put that in uh, the, the loosest terminology possible, was going to church and not leaving their car on Sunday. I mean, just consider it no different than you stopped in a parking lot to take a phone call on your way to the grocery store, which is allowed under this whole thing. So, right now, it is still not illegal in Ontario, anyway, for you to drive out on the road. It's not illegal for you to go and do the things that you want to do in your day. Now, a gathering is, I don't know how they've defined gathering. I would say if you're in a parking lot in your cars, you could go either way, because on one hand, if it was promoted and scheduled and everyone was there for a similar event, fine, but no one is actually being harmed by this. And when you have law enforcement resources that are now going towards monitoring people who are just going to church in their cars on a Sunday, you have to wonder who on earth is being helped by this. And there's a website that I came across on the weekend that I I thought was actually very interesting. It's called policingthepandemic.github.io. And it actually has a a rolling chart. It's kind of a database of various cases where people have been charged with violating these emergency provisions. And and they're sourcing it from news outlets. So it's not an exhaustive list nationwide of people who have been charged, but it is a, a list of all the news stories about it. And in some cases, there are no details. For example, line 122 on this is someone in Edmonton, a man who was handing out religious pamphlets. So, another one where religion is apparently no longer allowed in the age of coronavirus. And this particular man was fined $1,200 for using a long stick with a claw, which is actually very biblical, if you think about it, a long long stick with a claw. I think that was one of the plagues or something. Uh, But he was uh, not complying with the physical distancing guidelines by handing out uh, all of this written material. And the thing that I find fascinating about this is that uh, he (laughs) apparently was not socially distanced, but the whole point is that you still have the right to be outside. So his... Offense, if you will, is violating the Public Health Act of Alberta by not physical distancing. Okay. Like, if he is handing out pamphlets and people don't want to get the pamphlets, they can just walk away. They can just not go near him. It doesn't sound from any of the reports that I've seen that he was uh, assaulting people, berating people, assailing people. And here's the thing. So I, I get of mixed mind on things like this, because on one hand, I'm like, why are you going out of your way to antagonize? Despite the fact that I I roll my eyes at a lot of these bylaws and enforcement officers, the whole point that I've said in the past, and will say again, is that we should all do our part as individual people, not as citizens that are threatened by law enforcement, which means yeah, we should respect the spirit of public health. We should respect the idea that we don't want to endanger other people. So I don't like this idea of deliberately antagonizing people. I don't like this idea of the protest that took place at Queen's Park on the weekend, which, by the way, if you look at the pictures from this protest, I I find this hilarious. So here are people, they may have, I think, a a kernel of good in what they're doing in, sorry, in what they want to do, which is say, yeah, we've got to stand up for civil liberties. But you've got a lot of people there that are saying, oh, the virus is a hoax. We think this is all made up and We think this is all nonsense. And you've got people that also, if you look at the signs that are saying, yeah, it's, I'm not saying no to the virus. I'm just saying that civil liberties are important. But the thing that I found funny about this is that all of them were like keeping six feet apart from each other which kind of proves, I guess it proves either point. But on one hand, it proves that, okay, they clearly think there is an issue here if they're not wanting to be all huddled together with you know their arms around each other. Because that's the real way you protest. If you really want to tell the government you don't buy into this, you should all just start you know, speaking moistly on each other, linking arms, you know, doing a, a bit of a conga line or something with your hands on everyone. But they were all keeping apart, which suggests that they do believe there is some truth to what's going on right now being bad and, and being something that needs to be dealt with. But when you look at this list, this policing the pandemic list, there are a lot of people where they have not done anything that has endangered other people and they're getting fined. You look at these churchgoers, churchgoers in Elmer, Ontario, they've not put anyone in harm's way and now they are facing police harassment. I, I don't even know what else to call it, police harassment, just because they decided to park in a parking lot on a Sunday for half an hour and listen to someone talk about the Bible and talk about God, which is kind of a, a church thing. So, you know, you could say that people are trying to find the loopholes and all of that, but I go back to what has become a theme on the show, and I know I sound like a broken record, but if you're just tuning in and you haven't heard previous episodes, I'm going to say that the biggest problem facing any jurisdiction right now, but speaking in Canada, all of the provincial jurisdictions that have put these laws and rules and orders into effect, is that when the spirit of the law and the letter of the law diverge, you should always go with what makes sense, with the pragmatic approach. And and there are a lot of these laws that were just, you know, slapdash, ham-fistedly put together, written on the back of a napkin, and they're going after people like the kids who play basketball, like the family that rollerblades, like, and Rebel News has done a great job, by the way. Rebel News has started taking up some of these cases and actually helping people fight them, helping people fight these orders that they think are unjust. And some of the the cases they've decided, there was an email that went out yesterday, a Calgary pastor who was feeding homeless people on the street, he got ticketed. A Cornwall man whose private dinner was interrupted by police banging on the door. A corner store owner in Woodstock, Ontario, that didn't put up a plexiglass cashier's barrier within 60 minutes of being ordered to do it. That case was ridiculous. They told him to do it. An hour later, they ticketed him for not having done it. I don't even know if you can get plexiglass in 60 minutes. And then a senior citizen who was fined for walking his dog by himself. These are the cases. And yeah, they're obviously picking specific cases that tell the story. But these are no longer outliers. That would, that would be, I'd say, the most important point here. These cases no longer look to be outliers. They look to be the norm. And when these things are happening with greater and greater frequency, nobody is taking the law seriously because nobody trusts that the law is actually about what the law is supposed to be about, which is the idea of public order. And by the way, this isn't just a, a right wing conspiracy. This isn't just a bunch of, you know, rabble rousing conservative people like me that are saying, oh, well, you know, I don't buy into this and, you know, my land and my freedom and don't tread on me and all that. stuff. And by the way, I've, I've, I've even got the, uh, the, the proof of it, the, the don't tread on me mug here. But this isn't just I keep like my headphones in it. So I'm not actually like drinking coffee out of it like a total badass. But the whole point is that people are not just fighting for their freedoms because they're just these, you know, anti-government freemen on the land types. You've got people from all over the spectrum, including, by the way, traditionally liberal groups like the Canadian Civil Liberties Association that are saying, hey, we don't suspend the rule of law just because there's a pandemic. Yes, emergency orders give the government a bit more of an ability to do things. But at the same time, we still have freedoms, we still have a constitution, and I wouldn't be surprised if a vast majority of these tickets were to get thrown out the second people have a court to go to to fight them. I I can't say for certain, but one point that I would argue, and Michael Bryant actually mentioned this in one article, is that $880 is a grocery bill for a family of four for a month. So when a family is getting ticketed for going outside and rollerblading, that ticket is money that they need that the government is saying, no, 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 it's more important to us. And when the family has done nothing but, hey, we wanted to get outside, who's to say they're wrong? Why on earth would you target them? And by the way, I'm a bit spoiled because I live in a suburban community. I live in London where land is accessible to people. And if you live out west, if you live in Alberta, if you live in Saskatchewan, uh, you can just walk for days and days and days without bumping into someone else conceivably. There are a lot of people in Toronto, in Vancouver, in Montreal, and looking outside of Canada, people in New York and uh, all of these other places that are really densely populated, that their idea of quarantine looks a lot different than yours or mine does where they're cooped up in you know a 300 square foot apartment because that's what they can afford and the only way they can get away from that is by going outside going to a park going to an empty parking lot so for all of these people especially in cities I have a lot of sympathy for them saying hey you know what I'm going to go and rollerblade and I'm going to use this empty parking lot and who gives a hoot if it's closed If it's closed and it's empty, then that defeats the purpose of going after people for being at something that's so packed and densely populated like they're at some big giant party. If it's empty, that's the point of it. You are socially distancing. You are socially distancing. So why do we keep going after people who are respecting the spirit of public health, the spirit of the law, And people who, again, I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again, are put in more in harm's way by a police or bylaw officer coming up to them and breaking that bubble than they are by just being left alone, which is what all of us as free people should be getting right now if we're not causing harm to anyone else. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Let's take a look at things that are happening globally right now. I have no inside knowledge. The most in-depth look I've ever had at North Korea was that movie, The Interview with James Franco and Seth Rogen. Very good movie, by the way. I recall watching it on Christmas Day when that whole weird uh, you know, theater band thing was happening a couple of years back. Kim Jong-un may or may not be dead. He may or may not be in a vegetative state. He may or may not be holed away at a resort. He may or may not be in quarantine. No one knows anything about North Korea. That's the whole point of North Korea. This is a place where the birth, uh, the, the the grandfather of the country, Kim Il-sung, his birth was foretold by the swallows, which if you know what that means, I want to talk to you because I'm having trouble deciphering the four- Cookies, But uh, Kim Il-sung was born on a mountaintop and his birth was foretold by the Swallows. And that is like the official government line on it. So you don't really trust anything that comes out of North Korea, even the media in North Korea that are foreign media are under the thumb of the North Korean regime. So I'm not saying he's not sick or even dead, but I'm saying that you shouldn't get too excited if that's what you're hoping for. Although the reports that come out are actually kind of interesting. This particular one was funny uh, from Business Today. Kim Jong-un's doctor botched heart surgery as his hands were shaking, claims a report. Now this is from the Daily Mirror, a report that uh, Kim Jong-un, who hadn't been seen in uh, nearly two weeks, which is a, a bit of a rarity, uh, was absent from a, a big national holiday. So that's why everyone was thinking that he's in ill health. Uh, we had earlier three anonymous sources tell Reuters that a, a team had been dispatched from China to help uh, recover him or repair him from some botched heart surgery. But now a Japanese magazine has said that the doctor's hands were shaking And that is why the heart surgery went the wrong way. Now, I imagine if you are the heart surgeon of Kim Jong-un, and you probably have like 18 uh, people with guns behind you as you do the surgery, your hands might shake a little bit. But uh, the problem is, because of that, you're more likely to get shot. So I haven't yet heard confirmation on if the doctor in this uh, supposed scenario survived or not. I'd say probably not from what we have available to us. Uh, This one, though, we can all relate to North Korea. Panic buying grips North Korea amid rumors of Kim Jong-un's demise. So according to the Washington Post, store shelves in Pyongyang have been cleared out of everything from liquor to laundry detergent to canned fish to cigarettes. Actually, I think my grocery store still had some canned fish in stock. Helicopters have been flying low over the capital. Trains in North Korea and Northern China have been disrupted. And everyone, because they are panicked about what's happening with Kim Jong-un, is worrying that they won't be able to access all of the things they need at the grocery store. No word yet on North Korea's toilet paper stash. Because that, of course, we learned in North America was the first thing to go when people started panic buying. But uh, North Korea is still just like us, except, you know, without the freedom. Although... I don't know, given the first segment of the show, you never know. (laughs) Uh, This one is funny. So North Korea has actually been like the most successful at dealing with coronavirus because they had like one case early on and I think they just shot the guy. So the case went up to one and then back down to zero. And I think a few days later it went to one and then back down to zero. So uh, not that I support the North Korean approach, but they've been from the numbers alone fairly effective at, uh, at dealing with it uh, because they are just so barbaric and, and brutal. This story, though, uh, from The Guardian, female leaders... More successful at managing the coronavirus crisis. Now, you can see in the slug, the headline of the article, uh, the initial title was Why do female leaders seem to be more successful at managing the coronavirus crisis? And then the headline at some point was changed to Are female leaders more successful at managing the coronavirus crisis? And then they uh, go down and they walk through countries that have had apparently a good response to this, such as New Zealand, whose prime minister is Jacinda Ardern, to Germany, whose leader, of course, is Angela Merkel. And what was interesting, though, is that they also go to countries where the leader is not a woman and find a woman who is involved in the public health response, like in South Korea, which is why I fear they would probably do a Canada thing, because if they would... And Canada's not mentioned in the article, but if you take this outlook and Canada were to do really well, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I mean, even though Justin Trudeau is the prime minister, their public health officer is a woman, so Canada's doing... a A great job at at managing things and I find this to be kind of hilarious because identity politics we thought was going to kind of go away in the midst of a real crisis we thought that people were probably going to focus more on actual data and actual science but apparently we've gone a little bit too far on this and now everyone's missing the old uh, identity politics Uh, everything's about feminism everything's about racism everything's about equality everything's about diversity and all of that and now we have to, but but I love the sub headline here. Plenty of countries with male leaders have done well also, but few with female leaders have done badly. And if you want to look at results, I mean, Angela Merkel is a very successful politician. She's been there forever. She keeps coming back and back and back. And she is as far as being a, a staple in Germany and in Europe and internationally, she's done well, even if I, I disagree with a lot of of what she's tried to do and and a lot of what she has done there. But I would not like to think that anyone should be making the claim that women are better at doing something just because they're women, in the same way that no one should be saying about men, that men are better at doing something just because they are men. So let's look at, at some of the reasons they say for the why. So Kathleen Gerson, who's a professor of sociology at NYU, says women leaders are more likely to be elected in a political culture in which there's a relative support and trust in government. So if you trust government, you elect a woman. If you don't trust government, you elect a man. I don't know what the takeaway from that is, but that seems to be the implication. But she says it's harder for men to escape the way they are expected to behave as leaders. So Justin Trudeau, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, they are all apparently slaves to their sex, and they are expected to behave a certain way, and they can't do anything other than that. That's the takeaway here. So I, it's interesting, though, because when they say that, yeah, men can do it as well, but women, I mean, they're they're doing it exceptional. No one can say why. I mean, apart from that little sort of quality that Kathleen Gerson tried to uh, pinpoint here, uh, no one can actually say why. Now, the theory that I have here, and again, I I don't know if it's true, because unlike the people, actually not unlike, like the people that wrote this, I haven't actually studied this in any empirical way, I'm just kind of riffing off of the first thing that comes to mind, but if they can do it, so can I, is that a lot of the specific countries that have female leaders are, are countries that are a lot more And I'm not saying because they have female leaders. I'm just talking about those countries specifically, like Iceland, like Germany. They're countries that seem to have a lot more of an ingrained welfare state mentality anyway. And I don't think that's related to them having a a female leader. It may or may not be. Uh, they're, They're countries where the government is a lot more centralized. So that may impact the way people vote or the type of politicians that it attracts from whichever parties and whatever. But those countries were the ones that didn't have to discuss and debate whether we immediately spend billions of dollars, whether we immediately shut down uh, social infrastructure, economic infrastructure. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily indicative of success because it doesn't look here like they're actually going based on case numbers. I mean, in the case of New Zealand, they're talking about the fact that a 14-day quarantine was implemented on March 14th with fewer than 150 people having been affected and none having died. So that's great policy. And I think New Zealand's prime minister, who I disagree with on a lot, did the right thing there. It's also a lot easier for a literal island to shut it down than it is for Germany, which I don't think it's safe to say did have the success that this article is claiming because in Germany, they've had almost 5,000 deaths. And even though that's a bit better than some other European countries, you look at the fact that Germany has not escaped this unscathed. And Germany, by the way, is a country that at the best of times does not care about protecting its borders. So I don't think you can hold up all of these things as success stories just because. But certainly the identity politics mentality here of let's uh, say that these people are better than these people just because they're women is I think wrong headed and I think most of the people who are female heads of state and heads of government would probably be offended by this uh, basically chalking up their success just to their sex instead of to decisions they've made and in the case of New Zealand shutting down its border I don't think that has anything to do with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern being a woman and everything to do with her doing what made the most sense and I, I don't think that we can say that Men or women are either uh, more or less logical when it comes to these sorts of things. I, I think that individual people can be logical and illogical, and that's that. I want to talk about the World Health Organization again, because this whole thing has become a complete sham of an organization, as you know. Reason.com, Robbie Soove has a great piece here. The WHO pushed a tweet out spreading paranoia about reinfection and then had to delete it, even though other media outlets had already cited it. And in this case, it was on Friday when the World Health Organization published a brief on so-called immunity passports, the idea that governments could grant special documents to citizens who test positive for COVID-19 antibodies, thus allowing them to move freely. The WHO warned that this is premature because they said, quote, no study has evaluated whether the presence of antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 confers immunity to subsequent infection by this virus in humans. And in the tweet version of it, They actually didn't put that context. They just said there is no evidence that people who have recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies are protected from a second infection. So they actually put out paranoia that you can see other articles picked up. For example, a CNN piece here, WHO says no evidence shows that having coronavirus prevents a second infection. A Bloomberg story that said catching COVID-19 once may not protect you from getting it again. According to the World Health Organization, A finding that could jeopardize efforts to allow people to return to work after recovering from the virus. So you can see lots of mainstream media articles that all pick up on that idea when that was actually the disclaimer to their main message, not the main message itself. So they deleted this. They had no finding to speak of, Robbie Suave points out, just an absence of definitive proof. And then they put up this. Earlier today, we tweeted a new WHO scientific brief on immunity passports. The thread caused some concern and we would like to clarify. We expect that most people who are infected with COVID-19 will develop an antibody response that will provide some level of protection. So they've gone from it provides no protection to we expect it will provide protection. To which I say, why are we looking at these people as being the so-called grown-ups in the room, the people that are supposed to be in charge, leading us, steering the ship, the steady hands in this. Why are we looking to them when they can't even get their own science straight and they're more focused on let's just keep sending out these tweets and messages and stuff and not actually worry about our response and our malignant presence and our capitulation to China and our non-doctor Director General Tedros Adhanom And WHO is the one that we are all supposed to look up to and respect. And and look, mistakes are made. I get it. Uh, People can put out sloppily worded tweets. I get that as well. But most of us, I think, if we're going to have this centralized, supranational body that serves as an authority, we should expect them to have their stuff together a lot more than the WHO has proved. We'll be back in just a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. I'm generally reticent to make predictions for two reasons. Number one, I don't want to look like a fool if they don't come to pass. But I also think that they're generally imprudent. I I like to look at all the options and all the possible scenarios and and go from there. And last week on the show, I, I was talking about whether or not the Nova Scotia killer, Gabriel Wartman, had a firearms license. And at the time, we didn't know. And what happened when I recorded the show, I think it was Wednesday morning or Wednesday midday, we didn't know, but we did know that the federal government had already started to talk about the Nova Scotia killing a little over a week ago as being indicative of the need for more gun control and a reminder of why we need to ban what the government calls assault weapons and all that stuff. And I was talking about this and I I said, listen, I mean, right now there's no evidence one way or another about whether the guy had a firearms license or not. The one thing we did know is that years earlier in his life, back in 2002, he had been given a conditional discharge for an assault charge, and one of the conditions was that he was banned from owning firearms for nine months. That was what we knew. It wasn't a lifetime ban, and it wasn't something that necessarily was indicative of eligibility or lack thereof in 2020. However, we didn't know one way or another. And I said I, I, he was probably not licensed, but I didn't know and I didn't want to say for sure. And then what was interesting is a few hours later, just as the show was coming out, we had RCMP saying that they have a good idea that he was not license that in a Canadian context they couldn't see any evidence of a firearms license they weren't sure about if he had a a permit elsewhere in the world but in Canada they said he didn't and that was a big point that I think was a very important one and undercut the messaging that Justin Trudeau had already started to put out now even without knowing it was irresponsible for Justin Trudeau and Bill Blair to start talking about gun control for that exact reason they didn't know How can they say that it's evidence of the need for more gun control when they don't know whether or not he had a license? Because if he has a license, it proves there might be some gaps in the system. If he doesn't have one, it proves that the system itself doesn't matter. But what happened later on in the week, on Friday... We got information that the guns didn't even, for the most part, have Canadian origins. Police gave another briefing late last week, and they said that one of the guns that the killer used could be traced back to Canada, and the rest, and we don't know how many or what types, had U.S. origins predominantly. Not all of them, but mostly U.S. origins. Now, this is so huge because anytime we talk about illegal guns in Canada, we learn that the vast majority of them are stolen or smuggled. And it seems like smuggling is more common even than theft from domestic sources. So for a guy who embarks on this rampage, this mass killing, claiming 22 lives plus an unborn child in there, so let's say 23 lives, just such a despicable act of evil, the gun laws didn't matter. Gun control didn't matter. And same as the laws that prohibit you from dressing up in a police uniform, the laws that prohibit you from putting police decals on a car and driving around, none of these laws which exist, which are on the books, did anything to stop someone from embarking on what this man embarked on. And I spoke last week to Professor Jacqueline Schildkraut, who's a criminology and criminal justice professor from New York. and, And she had said, listen, I mean, anytime someone looks at gun control as being a panacea, they're missing the mark. And I thought she extrapolated very well on that. She said, whenever a mass shooting happens, a whole bunch of things have converged on one point on one person at one time. And it's gun access, it's motivation, it's life, it's uh, mental health infrastructure. And there are a whole bunch of different things that have all gone to one particular point, And that's what happens. And if you take out one of those variables, you're not actually solving any problems. It may feel good. It may feel like you're solving a problem. But you're not actually doing anything substantive that is going to save lives in the long run. So Justin Trudeau, Bill Blair, yeah, they were already committed to gun control. They were already committed to cracking down on firearms that are actually not even used in killings in Canada that do take place. The the vast majority of gun crime is gang-related and using illegal handguns. They're going after these so-called assault weapons, which they haven't even defined. But to use this killing... To use these lives that were lost as justification just doesn't align with the facts of the story. It just doesn't. And I I, I said last week, and it bears repeating, that this is not a discussion I want to be having. I, I don't want to be talking about gun control and gun rights. I would much rather look to the victims and say, let's honor their lives and honor their memories. But people like me who are supporters of gun rights have no choice when the gun control people start politicizing tragedy moments after tragedy happens. Because we can't just shut up and say, all right, well, we're not going to defend gun ownership because it's it's in poor taste right now. No, I think you have to defend it, but point out how in poor taste the people that are calling for uh, disarming uh, law-abiding gun owners are. You have to call out how callous their political response to this is. So the RCMP, it took them a little while, I think, too long to say whether or not he had a gun license. But then they they did. They And it wasn't even in the main statement. It was when someone asked a question. Initially, they weren't responding. And then it was a reporter that pushed a bit further on Wednesday and said, OK, look, I, I'm just like there, there's no trial here. You don't need to hold back any details for a court case. So just tell us, did he or did he not have a license? And and the RCMP superintendent at the time was like, uh, like he was a bit waffling on it. And then he just said, yeah, we we believe and we have a good idea that he didn't have a gun license and then when the rcmp gave the walkthrough on the timeline of what happened when things happened the different crime scenes uh, they were able to give a bit more clarity and say that there were multiple guns it's unclear how many handguns so at one point they said a pistol And at other points, they said pistols. So we don't quite know the volume. And I I reached out to the RCMP for clarification and, and didn't hear back. So I won't commit one way or another. But still, multiple guns that were illegal to be owned were unregistered, were unlicensed by an unlicensed killer. Whether we can do something to protect the border against this, I think is an important question, but it proves that the answer is not going to come from reclassifying firearms as prohibited. It's not going to come from restricting law-abiding gun owners. It's not going to come from changing even storage regulations because these are guns that were smuggled illegally from Canada or from the U.S. to Canada. And even if you want to blame the U.S. for this and blame U.S. gun laws and gun access, which fine, that's a discussion. If you want to have it, go have it. But that has nothing to do with Canada because we as a country cannot control other countries' firearms laws, nor should we. So if we have an issue with the U.S. and how easy it is to get a gun in the U.S., that says, hey, we should probably take our border a lot more seriously than we take our border. The answer to another country's gun laws that you don't like is to start taking your border and your border control more seriously, knowing that someone could, hey, smuggle guns in legally or illegally, legally if they have, legally if it's not smuggling, because if they have a license in Canada and you're able to, it's very difficult for most Canadians to buy a gun in the US, but if you are able to and you have the appropriate license in Canada, yes, you can import them. But you also have to get export permits from the U.S. So if someone brings a gun from the U.S. to Canada, there are a lot of things that have to happen. In the vast majority of cases, it's being done illegally. So for the Nova Scotia killing, the reason I'm talking about this is because Trudeau is using this as an example. And I think a lot of people in the media and a lot of people in Canada are probably going to buy into it as why gun control matters more than ever and why it's needed to be restricted, when if you look at the facts of this, it actually matters even less than it did before because this is probably, and I I hate to say this because, again, it, it sickens me that this has to become a political discussion now, but this case is everything that gun rights advocates have been talking about whenever the topic comes up, which is that criminals don't care. Criminals don't care, and it shouldn't need to be stated because criminals are already playing fast and loose with the law because they're ignoring it, so why would a regulation help them? It, it doesn't prevent access, it doesn't prevent possession, and it certainly doesn't prevent people from opening fire on innocent people as they did in this case and as they've done in, in countless other cases. So if you think gun control is the answer here, you are sorely misguided. And if you think that now is the time to be talking about gun control, you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself why you are being so insensitive to capture and basically hijack to hijack a case that has nothing to do with guns and make it about your political agenda. We've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all who listened to the show, wrote in. We'll talk to you in just a couple of days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.